I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. It was not only difficult, but it was actually impossible to find a telescope in Afghanistan under those conditions. And then I made my own telescope. It worked. I was able to see the moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn. I saw the distinct stars of Pleiades, and I definitely saw thousands and thousands, even millions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's Abraham Amiri. His unquenchable passion for astronomy began when he was a child gazing up at the stars from a rooftop in Pakistan. That passion has taken him from yearning to be an astronaut to setting up a nationwide program in astronomy in Afghanistan. And he now has a Kavli scholarship at UCLA, having escaped the wrath of the Taliban for the sin of teaching young women about the universe. It's a story of curiosity and courage that I find kind of inspiring. This is so good to be talking with you because you have such an important story. You followed your passion against incredible odds. It's a story that's inspiring to me. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alan. I am honestly very much honored that you uh, invited me as your guest. I was I would probably never imagine this in my life. Well, I have I'm all very... my heroes on if I can. <laughs> and you're one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you became so passionate at an early age about astronomy and then about communicating what, what you were so excited to be learning. But the progress that you made in that quest is so interesting. It started... In Pakistan, I think, when your family left Afghanistan to go to Pakistan to escape the Russian invasion, is that right? Yes. My parents left Afghanistan in 1985 uh, and went to Pakistan and and settled there as refugees, just, as you said, uh, to escape the the Russian war. And then uh, they got married in 1988 uh, and I was born in 1989, uh, while they were still in in the in the in a refugee camp in Peshawar. Your introduction to the night sky it came from such an interesting place that it, because it was so hot that you had to sleep on the roof. Yeah, so Peshawar's summers are very hot and humid. I still remember I had we would we used to have all these like blisters that would just pop in our on our skin because in wow. all the rash because of the hot weather and even even sleeping on the rooftop it wasn't you know as easy but we had just adapted because we were just born in, in in a place like that so we wouldn't be, like if i go there now i would i wouldn't be able to survive that that heat didn't seem and, unusual at the time yes yes because it was just like we thought this is how the world works and <laughs> And then, um, uh, but but sleeping on the rooftop would just help you a little bit uh, to like fight that 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 uh, heat and and humidity in some way. But then, uh, on the other hand, I I had the this wonderful opportunity to look up at the night sky filled with thousands of bright stars, no city lights, nothing. It was on on moonless nights. I used to get the best views of the Milky Way. And then, more interestingly, my mother, who still remembers all of the fairy tales that, that her 
grandmother told her when she was a kid, she would passionately just uh, tell us all these wonderful stories and, and we would listen to her and staring at the night sky and the stars, like I would fall asleep and imagining myself in one of those gardens that is placed in the heaven, in the skies that she used to mention. And that was a house for a, for a giant uh, devil. <laughs> um, and you wanted to visit the devil? <laughs> I, I wanted to visit the, the garden for sure, but I, I was always like scared of the devil too. Um, but the, the excitement to, to go and visit the, those other worlds or gardens in the, in the space b- between stars was something that would, you know, keep my attention to, towards the stars. And, and that's, uh, I, I, one of, one of these years, I, I don't quite remember if it was 1996 or seven, but it was just around those years when I, uh, when somebody said that, oh, there's a, there's a star in the sky that has a tail. And I, I couldn't believe that because I was like, I, I look at stars every, every night, but I don't see a star with a tail. How, how is that possible? And then we all ran into the rooftop and, and really the first time I saw the comet Hale-Bopp, I mean, which I, I didn't know about the name of the comet or about its nature, uh, like the scientific nature of it. But I, I looked at the star and I was like so amazed. I was like, what? Why does it have a tail? And then my mom told me, well, it's a queen star and whoever sees it will, you know, become a fortunate person in the future. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely changed my life and I feel fortunate for being who I am today. I wonder how many astronomers have been inspired by moments like that where something unrecognizable is seen for them for the first time and just ignites the curiosity. Yes, only later in uh, in my like early teens I would say that's when I started reading about other scientists and astronomers and their biographies. I mean before that I didn't even know anything about the wonderful like stories of other scientists like Isaac Newton or Galileo or all the way to Einstein and and the brilliant scientists we have today. And when I when I read their stories I'm like, okay, this was this is something very interesting because you find the similarities between, uh, you know, people like that, you know, and it's just like they, they're inspired at a very early age. But then I'm like, I become proud of myself in some way, but then I'm like, no, no, you're, you're different. You're not even close to them. They're, they're, they're the great, greatest minds of, of our history. They're our actual heroes, but I definitely do not compare myself with, with them. But it's interesting to see the, the similarities in many ways. You went back to Cabo, or for you, you went to Cabo for the first time after it was safe to do that. And and I think around that time, did your father introduce you to the idea that the Milky Way was not just a cloud, it was billions of stars? Yes, Alan. So my interaction with my father was very limited when I was young because he used to work in Afghanistan as as an architect. and uh, I and my mother and my siblings were in Peshawar because he couldn't get a, a good job in Peshawar. The only 
place he could get a better job in in his own field of work was in Afghanistan. Although it was much, much more like risky to work in Afghanistan under the different regimes and governments that were at at work between the the 90s all the way to early 2000s. But he used to uh, stay there. So for that reason, I did not have a lot of like interaction or like Mm -hmm. my childhood was not spent with my father. It was more with my mother. But when we moved to Afghanistan, that's when uh, I got a chance to spend some time with my father as well. And that's when he uh, told me about the distinct stars of of the Milky Way. And and I guess he had looked through one of his uh, engineering equipment. It's called, I guess, a theodolite or something. And and then uh, he had uh, turned that to, to the Milky Way at some point when he was a, a student at, at uh, Kabul uh, Polytechnical University. And, and then he had seen the distinct stars and he knew about it. So when he said, I, I couldn't believe it, I was like, how do I look? How, how can I see that? And he said, well, you need a telescope for that. And then I was like, I want a telescope now. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, it was not only difficult, but it was actually impossible to find a telescope in hmm. Afghanistan under those conditions, because the the, the country was still war torn. I mean, I mean, this there was all these signs of like the civil war in the country. The buildings were destroyed, and you could find bullets and leftovers of of of, of the Russian artillery everywhere, like in the town. So. Uh, in a country like that, in a city like that, it's you just don't expect to find a telescope. So then I started thinking about finding one, and then I made my own telescope. How did you make a telescope? How did you even know how to do it? So I didn't know how to do it initially, but um, my one of my uncles, who used to live in the United States, well, he still lives here, uh, he was visiting us at one point, and uh, he... I guess he knew that I'm very interested about, I mean, uh, about astronomy and stars. He brought me an an astronomy book. Uh, It was called The The Night Watch by Terence Dickinson. And that was, that book taught me so much about astronomy that I, that it just shaped the the foundations for me to, 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 I learned so much. I learned about the constellations, the motion of the sky as the earth rotates and, all every everything I, I learned from that book was was new was brand new and I was like and I would just apply the knowledge to the to the outer world and I would see it actually works the constellations that do exist and they they move as as the night you know goes by so so all of these observations made me more and more interested interested in astronomy but in that book uh, they also introduced all sorts of telescopes. But then in one of my uh, physics books, at, uh, when I was an 11th grader in high school, uh, there was a chapter about uh, the, the, tele- the like refractor telescopes and how they work. Um, so uh, when I looked at that, I was just, oh, that's a basic uh, idea. You just ha- have to have two magnifying glasses with different focal lengths, and you just put the glasses in, in appropriate places inside a tube and and you could make the telescope. So that's how uh, I first learned the theory. And then I collected all my uh, tools and equipment to to put them together. And actually, 
it worked. Where did you get the tube? Oh, so the tube has a very interesting story. So, well, we, we used to, because Kabul was a, a, was a cold place, as opposed to Peshawar's like hot summers. <laughs> it had very cold winters, so we, and very long winters, like full of snow. So we, we used to have uh, these uh, like chimneys or like heaters that had these long pipes. And uh, since it, it the winter was over, so my mom had put the, the heater in a corner of, of the yard. I just went there and took one of the, the tubes and the pipes and I, I cut it to the size that I needed. So, well, to be honest, I... I I got uh, I I got like beaten by my mom for that because because she she thought I I destroyed her heater and and I, actually I did that but so you put the two magnifying glasses at opposite ends of the tube and then you could actually see the stars how how powerful was this telescope that you made so initially my uh, uh, the, the the focal length on my uh, objective lens was. Uh, 230 millimeters so it was not a very like long uh, sort of like it, it didn't have a lot of capabilities but my my eyepiece was also around I guess uh, 20 to 23 millimeters so that was only a 10x uh, uh, of, of, of magnification power. How did it compare to Galileo's first telescope? Oh, I guess Galileo's was 30x, so he he had a stronger <laughs> telescope. He has he had a more powerful telescope than mine at, at first attempt. But then when I I advanced my telescope, I used uh, the eyepiece of uh, of an old microscope that my uncle gave me. So with that eyepiece, which was I guess a 5mm or something, I could get all of a sudden like more magnification. And with that one, I was able to. Uh, see the 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 moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn. I saw the distinct stars of Pleiades, and I saw many many more stars in the Pleiades cluster. Uh, and I definitely saw thousands and thousands, even millions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> that must have been so exciting for you. How old were you at that point? Oh, uh, I was uh, seventeen when that happened. And you already were not only fascinated with what you could see, but just like as a younger kid, you wanted to see the gardens up in the heavens. You wanted to be an astronaut, right? Somehow you got the telephone number of NASA and you called NASA to see if you could become an astronaut. That kills me. Yes, Alan. I mean, internet was slowly becoming available to to Afghans. Like the whole city probably had two or three internet cafes and you could Google things or like, search a few websites. So there I found NASA's website and I, I got their phone number. And then I would just collect money uh, uh, because I, I, I didn't work at that time. So I had to like wait for my dad's salary. When he got his salary, I would get the, the cash and buy credit for, for my phone because it was very expensive to call outside Afghanistan. It was like super expensive even to talk for one minute. But then I would quickly call the guy and ask him. And I did that multi, multi, like multiple times. And at some point he was so tired, he told me, well, we have a website. You can go and check the requirements over there. You don't have to call us. Uh, but I was feeling like, oh, by just 
uh, calling NASA now. I feel like ready. I'm all set. <laughs> now now I can go to the moon. <laughs> I, I was very ambitious in my early teens. I, I was like even very confident that at some point when I graduate high school, I'll go to uh, like the Air Force and so just to complete the requirements of becoming an astronaut because uh, uh, you had to be a, a jet pilot and then you also need to be a scientist, you know, at the same time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do my pilot thing first and then I'm going to do my science so that I can apply. But then you had to be a U.S. citizen, which was another disappointing thing. I was not a U.S. citizen. I was not even close to being a U.S. citizen, let alone being a uh, uh, being one. Um, so I, but I, I never stopped dreaming. Honestly, it's like a, a crazy obsession with something uh, that that you really want. Um, so uh, I, uh, I I wanted to do that, but then even in my country there was no uh, program for like a jet pilot. You could do helicopters, and I was like, that's not what I want to do. It's not gonna help me with my goals. So then um, uh, when I graduated high school, I uh, went to Kabul University and, and studied physics there. So because NASA considers uh, physics, um, like if you have a bachelor's degree in physics, that's considered uh, uh, one of the like requirements for becoming an astronaut. So then I was like, okay, let's do this first. And then maybe by then uh, I, there will be a like jet program in, in Afghanistan, but Afghanistan never actually found like jet aircrafts. So that uh, sort of affected my uh, my goals adversely. And then I that's that's when I slowly turned from becoming an astronaut into more like, you know, staying with, with uh, astronomy and, and astronomy education because that was another passion that I had. I, I, I love talking to people. I love sharing my telescope with people and, and showing them what, what I saw was uh, inspiring to me. When we come back from our break, Abraham Amiri tells me how the joy he gets from sharing his excitement about the stars led to his creating a nationwide program for Afghan high school students in astronomy. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Abraham Amiri and how a visit to the United States paved the way for his creation of the Afghan Astronomy Association. 
How did you get to America? You had a short visit to the States around that time. How did that happen? I kept looking and searching for like different programs uh, that was in astronomy because that's my one of the things that I wanted. I wanted to come to U.S. and 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 learn the, about the uh, American astronomy in some way. So uh, I uh, ended up seeing this program that's called CURIA. It's called Consortium for Undergraduates Education and Research in Astronomy. And then I applied for the program and uh, they just liked the idea that my, my story was very interesting to them. And they invited me to, to, to the program. So when I got the admission, then I went to the U.S. Embassy and applied for a visa. I was not even expected, expecting to get a visa because they would usually reject single Afghan men who are 25 years old and they don't just have a reason to go back to Afghanistan. Uh, so, so they wouldn't give, give them a visa. So I, uh, I got my visa like, just like immediately because the, the, the consular probably realized that I am very passionate about what I'm doing. And that was another moment. I started jumping. I, I can't believe that, <laughs> that I was actually going to, uh, to United States. Uh, and then in my first visit, I'm visiting this historic place, Mount Wilson Observatory. Oh my God, you can only talk about that place so much. And the, the historic importance it has with all the great scientists like Edwin Hubble and uh, and, and even Einstein was visiting that place at some point. So that was the that was in 2015, yeah, when I came here. So you were standing next to the very telescope that Hubble used when he figured out the universe was expanding, which later led to the idea that there was a Big Bang. Yes. So you were right at the heart of it, and you had made your own telescope. What were you thinking when you stood next to that telescope? I call this... Uh, a journey from 100 millimeters to 100 inch. <laughs> because my homemade telescope had an aperture of 100 mm. It was like, yeah, it was a 100 mm telescope. And then that moment I was next to the 100 inch Hooker telescope that, as you say, Edwin Hubble used to discover the expansion of the universe, which led to... <laughs> <laughs> the Big Bang Theory. When you got back to Afghanistan, you started to really work on spreading the word, communicating about astronomy, right? How did you do that? So um, I just made a lot of more uh, American friends uh, during my trip to the United States. And then uh, uh, by the time I, I returned, obviously the U.S. Embassy started putting more trust into me because uh, they were seeing that I'm an authentic, authentic person, I, I do the right thing. I, I visited, I did not stay. You said you would go back. You yeah. said you'd go back to Kabul and yeah. you did. Yes, because most of the people in my age at like 25, when they come, uh, or at any age, I would say, from a, from a place like Afghanistan, they would never return. Even the police, the border police uh, in Kabul airport, when they when they saw that I returned from U.S. after like a three weeks trip, they just looked at me like, like as if I'm like an idiot, you know? I'm like, what, <laughs> what are you doing back here? And wow. most of my friends were surprised. They were like, you just go to U.S. and you stay there, or you go to like Canada or some other country. Why are you back in this hell? 
and I was like, I, I always believe that uh, I the, the I owe my country. I by by that time I had uh, developed this mindset that uh, I can be more uh, efficient and effective in my own country. And I saw that the people need me, and uh, I need to talk to them and and get them out of the situation that they are in right now. They still think that the meteors are uh, actually uh, uh, fiery weapons of angels there who who are trying to push down the the devil that, that tries to go to the skies and listen to God's meeting and stuff like that. So I wanted to to battle all these uh, superstitious ideas and and that was only possible through uh, promoting the actual science of astronomy and physics and replace that with the astrology and other superstitious thoughts and beliefs they had. So uh, I, I thought that was something important and, and that needs to be done. And, and so carrying that kind of mission and looking at the possibilities of me becoming a, a NASA astronaut, which is very low, that chance I was like, okay, I want to go back. I just want to be where I belong. Uh, and within the, the last few years, the, uh, our friends from U.S. Embassy in Kabul at the time uh, were very impressed by our activities and, and by what I was doing. So they started funding uh, the institution that I had founded, was, which is called the Afghan Astronomy Association, or AAA. So the main idea and what I always wanted to to do is like provide the other students the opportunities that I didn't have when I was in school. And for that reason, I, I just couldn't like go and buy a telescope and give it to random people. I just had to make sure that these are the students who are as passionate and interested in astronomy as I used to be. So we had uh, already purchased the telescopes from China using the uh, American fund, the U.S. federal government funds. And we... We launched uh, the first astronomy essay contest in the country. It's called the Galileo Astronomy Olympiad. And this was just to find out the right people. So we would just go and announce across all the schools and say, uh, okay, whoever writes as, uh, essays about uh, like any topics related to astronomy will be considered a participant for the, the contest. And then if they win, they will get these nice prizes like telescopes. And so within a week or two, we received tons and tons of essays into our office. And then based on that, uh, and depending on the, the, the limited number of telescopes we had for each province, we would choose the top 20 or 30 schools and select them as winners and give them their telescopes and set them up for them, teach them how to use it so that they can uh, always uh, use the equipment to look at the stars. And then we continued to apply the same uh, model in 11 provinces of Afghanistan. That's one third of like the whole country. And uh, until the last day when finally the, the whole country fell down to the current leaders of the country and we had to stop everything. So you had 180 clubs, I think. Yes, yes. Around the country. Yes, we had. And the Taliban came in and stopped it completely. They did wiped it, wiped out your program. Yes, uh, uh, I would say our everything that we did was just like building castles of sand 
on a beach with a little wave that came. Uh, it just did not exist anymore. It's, it's just all wiped out, unfortunately. What problem does the Taliban have with astronomy? Do they regard it as blasphemous in some way? Taliban have problem with education in general, not just with, with astronomy. Uh-huh. They, they're anti-women's education, and, and even for, for, for boys, they're not very much interested to let them study science because they know that science has the ability to promote critical thinking. You cannot solve a math problem without thinking. You cannot solve a physics problem without thinking. So, and they don't want people to think. Astronomy is more uh, detested by the Taliban because it has a nature of asking big questions like who created the universe and how long did it take, you know, for the universe to come into existence and, and, and be the way it is. And it challenges all their Ptolemaic model that still exists in, in their religious text in Quran, which is definitely talking about seven skies and a flat earth and, and things like that. And so astronomy comes and challenges all these ideas. It's, it's actually stated in Quran that the meteors are, are uh, fiery weapons of, of angels. It's not something that people made up. It's, it's written in, in their religious book. Hmm. So, Alan, imagine if, if somebody comes and teaches a whole nation, a whole generation of young Afghans, uh, that, that the meteors are just little debris left over from the orbits of, of like, uh, comets that cross the Earth's orbit. Or, you know, uh, the, the eclipses are just normal events that has been happening for billions of years and nothing has happened. So you don't need to be worried or scared or scream or anything. It's just going to go away. Then who is going to buy the Taliban's books or ideology? So that's why they, mm. they uh, it's, it's very obvious that they, they, they will definitely not want that to happen. Here you were leading this effort to educate your fellow Afghans. To think, were you in danger? Yes, yes, I was always in danger. I was hiding in, in those safe bubbles. I, I was born in a, in a harsh condition, Alan, and I was raised in harsh, harsh and uh, difficult circumstances. I knew how to survive under tough situations. I knew, uh, and, and I was still, like, uh, doing my, my job, but, do it very carefully and do it like with a lot of risk management. I, I, I could, I was able to, to do that. But during the U S existence, I mean, in Afghanistan, it was not as bad, but now, I mean, the Taliban have power over all the country and they're applying their Sharia laws everywhere. And, uh, they would definitely imprison or kill anybody who, who educates the, the young generation. But you know what? I have. I was able to uh, develop my social media platform during this time, and I have my audience. And uh, even today, I sit here in America, in, in a safe place where they cannot harm me. But every time I post something, I talk about these superstitious ideas, and I try to fight it with uh, with, with science. And and I have. 
tens of thousands of views and they, they get shared. I definitely get a lot of uh, threats, you know, and warnings from some people and some people hate me for that. But then I slowly the numbers are changing and the ones who mm. uh, actually now there are more people who, who are on my side and and the number of the opposite people are are, are shrinking. So So I'm like, okay, mm. I can uh, thank God for this. So you were lucky enough to escape with your whole family, and you wound up at UCLA. You hooked up with Professor David Jewett. How did that happen? So um, I have been, I was searching for uh, continuing my education in the field of planetary sciences. That's what I wanted to do always. But uh, uh, in, in my search and with the help of one of my friends, uh, who who really helped uh, me and my family uh, evacuate from Afghanistan. Back in the day, she was at the Academy of Sciences, and, and now she's at the, at the, at the Kavli Foundation. So Professor David Jewett is a laureate of the Kavli Prize, and my friend used to work there. So through her, I got connected with Professor David Jewett, and it looks like he will, he also found my story to be very interesting. And he asked me to see him at UCLA uh, last year when they were doing this program. They, they call it Explore Your Universe. It's initiated by the Earth, Planetary, and Space Sciences Department at UCLA. And it's one of the huge uh, uh, science outreach programs that, that take place in, in Southern California. And um, just right about the time that e, this uh, EYU or Explore Your Universe was happening, he invited me and he said, oh, well, since you love outreach, come see the program and see me. If you, we like each other, then we can uh, probably do something about your admission. And this is how we got connected. And, and it looks like we, we like each other. Well, I definitely like him. I don't know how, he, how much he <laughs> likes me or not, but we, well, yeah. You know, what strikes me about your story is how often the word story comes up and the power of story, the power of a good story, the passion to tell the story, the passion that is the stuff of the story, how you, you, got, you got up to the garden that you were looking for in the most circuitous way. But it was through the, the power of story and the passion for exploration. It's a, it's a wonderfully inspiring story to hear. Thank you, Alan. You know, we're running out of time for our conversation. I'd, I'd love to hear more, but we're running out of time. But we close every show with seven quick questions. Okay. Number one, of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Um, how the universe started, what was there before the Big Bang. <laughs> okay, number two, this is interesting. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I just tell them straight to their face, and I, I don't care about how they feel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, my God. Hmm. I probably don't have that on top of my mind right now, but... 
Okay, yeah. well, well, maybe it'll come to you. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> you have quick solutions to these things. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? Uh, I start my conversation with a, with a genuine smile, and then I, I continue. And that, that probably does it. You've been smiling through our conversation. You've made me, <laughs> made me even more curious about you. Okay, next to last. This is, this is, I really want to know the answer to this. What gives you confidence? Uh, the fact that I know what I'm, what I know and, uh, and the things that I don't know, I know that I don't know. So I, you know, is something like what I know gives me the confidence, but then what I don't know, and I know that I don't know that it just adds to, to that confidence. Great. Now you may have already answered this final question. What book changed your life? Nightwatch. Nightwatch. By Terence Dickinson. Well, thank you for that recommendation, and thank you for being here, and thank you for the passion and the energy you put into your life so far. You're still so young, you can accomplish great things, even greater from now on. So I, I wish you the best. Thank you, Abraham. Thank you very much, Alan. It was wonderful uh, being your guest today. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. A Kavli scholar, Abraham Amiri is a graduate student in planetary astronomy at UCLA. He continues his passion for sharing the heavens with others through a regular Wednesday session on campus where he sets up a telescope outside his office for passersby to see the sun as they've never seen it before. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Cynthia Brazil. While she was still a PhD student at MIT, she had an inspiration that changed her life, and it could be on its way to changing ours as well. We send robots into the ocean to explore the oceans. We send them into volcanoes, and now we've landed them on Mars. Why are they not in our homes? I grew up with this vision, right, of robots amongst us, and, and that is literally the moment I'm like, I have got to work on this problem of autonomous robots being able to interact with anyone and everyone in a way that can collaborate with us and help us. And believe it or not, nobody was really working seriously on that problem. And that became 
what's known known as the field of of social robotics. And it was about if you're going to interact with people, they need to be socially intelligent, they need to be emotionally intelligent, they need to be able to communicate in natural ways, um, they need to be able to collaborate with us in human-centered terms. So that was the beginning of it. Cynthia Brazil, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.